0: Today on Something You Should Know, we start with a simple way to get people to open up and reveal details about themselves, then an explanation of why things spread. Not just things like viruses, but also videos,
1: rumors and fake news. People have a tendency to value novel information, which completely makes sense, just that new information is often something that's valuable to us. By definition, if something is false, it's more likely to be new to us. So actually, there are these inherent characteristics of misinformation which might be helping them spread more than than other sources.
0: Also, the fascinating connection between the arguments couples have and how hungry they are and a lot of us are addicted to our phones and technology.
2: And in fact, the thing that you need to know is that this is something the technology is designed to do. It's not simply neutral delivery of messages, it's trying to form a habit. All this today on Something You Should Know.
0: If you have to hire someone, what's the best way? Referrals? Well maybe that could work, but just because somebody knows somebody who knows you Something you should know, fascinating intel, the world's top experts, and practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. Hi. You know, I subscribe to this service that once a week sends me an email with like a synopsis of the latest reviews on Apple Podcasts. ...about this podcast. And lately there have been some very nice, kind, complimentary reviews. If you left one of them, thanks. And if you'd like to leave a review, I invite you to do so at Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen. But there's always a place to leave a rating and review, and they are appreciated. First up today, you ever want to get somebody to reveal more about themselves? Well, a good way to do it is to make them laugh... People who were shown videos of stand-up comedy routines were much more willing to share intimate details of their lives than people who watched neutral videos, according to a British study. The study's authors hypothesized that laughter is a social coaxer, making people feel more relaxed about the details they communicate. This could potentially explain why you think your best friends are also your funniest friends because laughter makes people more at ease, letting their guard down, which makes them feel more connected. Laughter and general playfulness are linked to stress relief, healthy blood sugar and blood pressure levels, as well as a stronger immune system. And that is something you should know. Have you ever wondered how things spread? Not just the coronavirus or the flu or any other disease, but also things like rumors and viral videos. How do they spread? How does anything spread? And then those things that spread, what causes them to stop spreading? Adam Kucharski is an epidemiologist and an expert on how things spread. He's author of the book, The Rules of Contagion, Why Things Spread and Why They Stop. Hi, Adam. Welcome to Something You Should Know. Thanks for having me. So you talk about you write about the name of your book is the rules of contagion implying that there are rules that things spread according to a certain set of rules yet as we look at things like the coronavirus it seems that it's so hard to predict what's going to happen where it's going to happen when it's going to happen that that there are no rules
1: i think there's a couple of things that make diseases and i guess contagion in general quite quite difficult to predict one is that yeah, unlike sort of, sort of a weather system where, you know, if you're if you if you're pessimistic about the weather, uh, that won't change the weather. But if you are, are pessimistic about what's going to happen about uh, a disease, if, if people are kind of concerned about it, that will change behaviour and that will kind of change the outcome um, that we see. And that's, that's true whether you're talking of, of biological infections, whether you're talking about content online that people might introduce policies to change, whether you're talking about financial crises and, and what central banks do. I think another feature is often um, a lot of the the, the contagion itself is, is undetected. Um, actually observing that moment where someone becomes infected is very difficult. We can try and piece it together from data later on. And again, this isn't just limited to biological viruses. In, in other fields, in the study of, of uh, social behavior, uh, a lot of debate around You know, characteristics like like smoking behavior or or mental health or obesity. How do these things spread? And it's very hard to to observe the exact moment that an idea goes from one person to the other. We really have to take these quite patchy data sets and try and piece together what it means. So it's always looking back at what happened, not not looking at what's happening right now. That's really been the case. That um, we we've had to kind of take data and, and try and work out what was going on. And there's there's good reasons for that. You know, if you want to study something like smoking, you can't get a lot of people to take up smoking and see how it spreads. You know, ethically, that's just not a study you can run. Um, but we are seeing with uh, online content increasingly that kind of detailed analysis being done. I mean, a lot of companies will do A/B testing. They'll they'll try out different ads online and see how people respond to them and see how they get. Uh, picked up. So I think uh, really the emergence of online content has enabled a lot of these uh, theories and hypotheses about how things spread to be tested and to be studied in detail. Because obviously, if people are sharing and retweeting stuff, you can see that network. You can see from one person to another um, how that's actually spreading, unlike a disease where you you can't observe that process and you have to try and estimate it. But when you look at
0: a, a video that goes viral, isn't it just a lot of individual people sharing it? I mean, it, there's no other way it could be viral, it's just
1: lots of people share it, right? I think one of the, the perhaps surprising things about online content is how it, it spread doesn't really line, line up very well, I think with the mental model a lot of us have of how things go viral. So I think we have this picture that one person shares it to a couple more and they share it to a couple more and they share it and you get this, this exponential growth, it's doubling, it's tripling. Um, but a lots of uh, videos and other popular bits of content don't tend to spread like that. O- often there's there's a single big amplification event in the, in the center of it. So it'll be, it'll be one individual, it's got into their newsfeed and they've shared it widely, or it'll be a news outlet and somehow it's got the attention of a journalist. And uh, studies of, of things that have gone viral online often find that there's this central major amplification event. Um, at the heart of really anything that takes off and i, I kind of ended up um, being on the end of this myself a few years ago where i gave a, um, a public lecture in london and it went up on youtube and it you know got modest got a few hundred views a day uh, over a year or so and then suddenly it was getting thousands and thousands of views accumulating and i went back to the people who'd organized the event and, and asked them have you got any idea what's happened here yeah you know, i can't work out how this is becoming popular and it turned out that somehow the YouTube algorithm had picked it up and just displayed it on the homepage. So actually, it wasn't really going viral. It had just been massively amplified by that single algorithmic action of one platform.
0: So it's usually some, something promotes it widely rather than the I told two people and they
1: told two people and they told two people. Exactly, and I think there are there are examples of things that have become popular through that mechanism. I mean, something like the Ice Bucket Challenge is a good example because that was very much nomination-based, that you were nominating two people and they were nominating others. But overwhelmingly, when things become uh, popular, typically we have these these application events and we see the same in disease outbreaks, you know, we call them super-spreading events where you have one big gathering or one big event that, that drives uh, this transmission. And increasingly with with online content, with misinformation, we're seeing people trying to manipulate that process. We're seeing people trying to target high profile individuals or outlets and try and get these fringe messages into the mainstream by uh, exploiting the fact that a lot of this transmission is very concentrated. In the case of a disease like the coronavirus,
0: why is it so hard to put the genie back in the bottle? Is it because we find out about it just way too late. And if we had known sooner that people were spreading this virus, we could have stopped it. Or at what point is the genie out of the bottle and and there's nothing anybody really can
1: do to stop it? I think the the, the features of the, the coronavirus in particular made it very, very tough. Um, there's been other viruses, obviously, that spilled over from animals into human populations. I mean, bird flu over the years and, and there's been outbreaks in in Chinese markets, but because initially and, and still those viruses don't transmit so well between humans, uh, there's been time to intervene and shut down the markets and shut down those sources of infection. But when you have something like uh, the coronavirus, where a lot of transmission is happening when people have mild symptoms or perhaps even before they develop symptoms, by the time you're getting those severe cases and be- by the time you're you're getting people with pneumonia turning up in hospital, you've probably got a huge amount of community transmission. Um, and so really, that certainly in the early stages of this, the the signals that countries were using to identify whether they had a problem, those signals would only be triggered by the point where you already had hundreds, if not tens of thousands of, of infections already. And obviously, when you're at that stage, dealing with 10,000 infections is much, much harder than dealing with perhaps a few dozen where they've got much clearer symptoms and easier to spot.
0: Why does it happen, for example, with the flu when there's a flu outbreak that at some point in the summer, it just dies off? It goes away. It just people stop getting the flu. Why does that happen?
1: There's a couple of reasons that, that viruses like flu have this uh, this this pattern where they kind of emerge and then, um, and then fade away. One is seasonal effects that viruses their ability to persist in the environment uh, will depend on the conditions, on the temperature, on the humidity. And that obviously varies between different countries. Mm. There is also during a flu season, quite a lot of accumulation of immunity. I mean, we've done a lot of analysis trying to estimate how often people get flu. um, And that's by using kind of antibody data and then working out these undetected infections. And really there's evidence that, that particularly younger groups, get flu probably every year or two. I mean, probably about half half the the population of uh, of kind of younger age groups get flu every year, but most just won't show symptoms.
0: Yeah, well, we hear that with the coronavirus, and I'm not sure I really understand it when they say people have the disease, but they have no symptoms, because isn't part of getting a disease to have symptoms? If you don't have symptoms, you may have been exposed to the disease, but you didn't have the disease because to have it is
1: to have it and get sick. That's an important distinction to make. Uh, so yeah, having having the disease and being a case of, of, of disease uh, would require you to meet a clinical definition for that disease. Um, but if we're talking about the transmission of an outbreak, so if we're talking about you know why a flu outbreak might decline, mm-hmm. if people are getting infected and building an immune response, then even if they're not showing symptoms, they're still important to the outbreak dynamics. But as you said they won't show up in the the statistics for disease burden and I I think that's really for many infections uh, an important distinction to make because obviously if you have a lot of infections but very few people showing disease or being severely ill that's a very different situation to something where pretty much everyone who gets it has a severe response and certainly in the early stages of this outbreak understanding which of the situations we were in was crucial.
0: With the spread of the coronavirus. I mean, the virus has been around and amongst the population for six, seven, eight months now. And it does seem that the experts haven't really been able to hit the nail on the head as to how it spreads, where it's going to spread, how it flares up. And and maybe it goes back to what you were saying earlier, too, is it really depends on how people behave, because it's people who give it to other people and if we all did, you know, sit in a closet for six months, there probably wouldn't be very many cases. But why can't we get a better sense of of what of what's going on?
1: I think there's a lot of uncertainty. Um, I mean, I think in part there's been some misinterpretation about what people are, are, are trying to suggest is going to happen. I mean, we've certainly produced worst case scenarios. And other groups have. In a situation where you don't do anything, and countries obviously have done a lot, and that's that's changed the outcome. And it goes back to that challenge of of predicting these things when policies are coming in. So I think anyone who says they're confident of what the next six months is going to look like, um, you know, really probably hasn't thought this through. But there is still a lot of uncertainty, and that's why a lot of experts can't give clear answers to things like how much exactly the children contribute to transmission. How much do people with um with no symptoms contribute? You know, if people have an antibody response, how? likely is that to protect them against infection or, or getting severe disease um, later on. I think in part uh, that's because of data collection because a lot of the studies we have of of these kind of detailed cases come from early countries that had the outbreaks under control. So obviously by definition if you have undetected transmission and you lose control of an outbreak those are undetected bits of data that you're not going to have Um, to study. So unfortunately, we do still have some, some pretty substantial gaps in how this thing spreads when you don't have these really stringent measures in place. Our
0: conversation today is about how things spread. And my guest is Adam Kucharski. He is an epidemiologist and author of the book, The Rules of Contagion, Why Things Spread and Why They Stop. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. So, Adam, I want to go back because I'm not sure I fully understood it. Why does the flu stop in the summer? Why does uh, every every year the flu comes
1: and it stops? The, the flu dies off for a combination of of two reasons. One is is seasonal effects in terms of the abilities virus uh, to survive because of things like changes in temperature, changes in humidity, perhaps changes in how people interact because of. of uh, yeah, if, if it gets warmer, people will be outside more. But I think there also is an accumulation of immunity, that during a flu season, a lot of people get exposed to it, but don't develop symptoms, which means that it can't spread further in those groups. And those two things combined act to reduce the, the, the size of the outbreak later in the season.
0: And when you say changes in temperature and humidity, the change could be either way, or you're specifically meaning it gets
1: hotter? So in changes in temperature, it It gets hotter but then also gets more humid and there's there's been a very long and very active debate in the flu community of exactly what combination of those things are important because we do get flu circulating and flu outbreaks in the tropics every year so it's not a simple case of it circulates in the winter but can't circulate anywhere warm but it's likely to be this this interaction of a few different things happening and then
0: every year when the flu comes back it's a different flu or it's often a different flu or it's a st- different strain of the flu or whatever. What what happens? W- where did it go? How does it come back? And why is it different than it was when it left?
1: There's been a lot of nice work using genetic data looking at, at global circulation of these viruses. I think what tends to happen is that you might get a virus causing outbreaks in, in one population. And that obviously creates this pressure on the virus to, to to pick up these mutations and uh, and try and elude that immunity. And then through international air travel, through uh, through you know, various kind of routes, the virus will get into other populations who wouldn't have had that specific newly mutated virus last year. So that population is more susceptible, so it causes outbreaks. And then it will start to, to as you get immunity, it will get pressure on the virus to change again. And it's really that complex network of, of virus mutation, of outbreaks, of international travel that keeps... Um, the sequence of outbreaks going over time well what I find really interesting
0: and would like to get you to talk about it is how like false information spreads like rumors and fake news stories like how do they spread because they're they're kind of like a, a bad virus but not a, a medical virus but a virus of information and it does seem like it it's somewhat similar
1: there's been a few studies in recent years of um false information online and one of the features that the research has noted is that people have a tendency to value novel information which completely makes sense just even from an evolutionary point of view that new information is often something that's valuable to us for for survival reasons or social reasons by definition if something is false it's more likely to be new to us than something that's true because if it's true we may well have heard it um. Already, so actually, there there are these inherent characteristics of of misinformation which might be helping them spread more than than other sources. Can you think of examples where that happened? I mean, earlier, early on, certainly in the coronavirus outbreak, we saw a lot of speculation about its origins, and some of them got really bizarre. I mean, there were uh, I know in the UK headlines about snake flu. Um, that it was someone had speculated it was from snakes, and obviously it's not a flu virus. Um, but I think because that was, if that was true, it was such a new surprising bit of information that people felt very um, very keen to share it, even though actually based on even what we knew at the time, um, it really didn't line up at all with the evidence that we had. As somebody
0: who's really researched and studied this whole concept of how things spread, what in all the research did you find that, that you found really interesting or surprising That 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 I would also that i would also Uh,
1: one of the things that i thought was fascinating was people who study um evolution of fairy tales um and and using these similar ideas of of looking as you would at a genetic sequence of a virus looking at characteristics of stories or perhaps elements of um of cultural tradition and thinking of it in the same way that you have components and, and bits of a story that will mutate over time as it spreads from one um culture to another for example, one was Goldilocks, and actually in the original iteration, it was a completely different character. It was a really kind of angry, sweary old woman who was um, essentially harassing some bears. And then it's kind of evolved over time to be the story that we know today. So I think those insights into our history and our behavior and beliefs uh, are really fascinating.
0: I wonder what that's about. Is is that just like the old, you know, telephone game that if a, if enough people repeat a story, they change a little bit, along, everybody changes it a little bit, and by the time the thousandth person has retold it, it's a whole
1: different story. I think there's certainly an element to that, and there's, there's been a lot of really nice experiments actually getting people to, to play that telephone game and finding which bits of information they retain. And often it depends on people's backgrounds. Um, so for example, if you tell someone with a military background a story with a lot of technical information on, you know, perhaps locations or timings or this sort of thing, They'll retain that information because that that's obviously what they're they're trained to identify as important information. Um, but in in many cases, I think with the the spread of stories and tales, often they will be adapted to reflect the values of the society they're spreading in. Because often there's an element of um, of a of a moral lesson or information on how they society ought to be structured. And so some of these variants do reflect perhaps. Um, the focuses and the, and the values within the societies they spread. When you look back at other
0: epidemics and pandemics, typically, how long does it take to get back to normal when the whole world has been disrupted the way we've
1: been disrupted now? It really depends on how people uh, respond to the outbreaks. For example, the the, the Spanish flu pandemic circulated for um, a couple of years. In in some cases, there were multiple waves. In some cases, three waves. But ultimately, that outbreak ended because immunity was accumulated. So some countries the US, for example, did introduce social distancing early on in that pandemic, and it it reduced the the curves in some cases, suppressed transmission. But then these waves came back and eventually populations developed some immunity. For other diseases like SARS, there were quite big shutdowns in in Asia and quite stringent measures like contact tracing and, and quarantines. Uh, But that managed to bring it under control in in a matter of months. I think the challenge we've got with the current coronavirus is the point we would need to to build immunity um, based on what we currently know would take us so long to get to uh, if we don't want to have overwhelmed health systems that uh, pretty much every country is is doing all it can to contain it. I think some countries haven't contained it and and probably won't. So it may well be that, that some immunity is accumulated that eventually slows down their outbreaks. But I think we're in a situation where countries don't want to let this take off and cause large outbreaks. But keeping it at a low level, we're really looking at a change in our lifestyles until we get a vaccine or until we get better treatments that mean this is less of a threat. Otherwise, even if we we manage to get rid of it in a local area, there's always a risk it can come back in from another country. So I think we're going to have to have that level of stringency, whether it's at a local level within communities or whether it's having strict border restrictions or, or or what scale we want to do is really up to governments but i think life is going to look different certainly for for a considerable period of time
0: yeah because uh, and i guess what i was also getting at was that even if uh, a vaccine showed up today and everybody took it and we all knew it was it was 100 percent effective i still think i'd be very less likely to shake somebody's hand or to, I mean, the, the, the lingering effects of, of this pandemic seem like they're going to be around for a long time, even after if we ever get a vaccine that works, it's going to change the way we interact with people.
1: I think it's certainly going to have some long effects. And I think also just the, the length of time that we've had to um, already live uh, under sort of very different lifestyles. I think a lot of those habits probably will um, embed within populations. And, and even if we get a vaccine that works, I mean, uh, we've only ever managed to, to fully eradicate one disease, Now that was smallpox back in the 70s. Uh, and that was an infection that had a very good vaccine. It, it traveled very well. It could get out into very rural areas. Um, and it's, it was an infection that came with very clear symptoms. So actually that kind of contact tracing based approach uh, would would really help identify a lot of these clusters of infection. So I think even if we get a good vaccine, um, it is going to take some time to get it out to people, to get people to to deal with the risk. And depending on how many people uh, accept the vaccine and are happy to have it and how well it works, uh, we may still get some flare ups afterwards. Wait, did you say that we've only cured one disease? We've only uh, wiped one disease fully off the face of the earth uh, for humans, and that's smallpox. Uh, that's when you say it like that, it's kind of
0: surprising because there's plenty of diseases that we don't see much anymore. German measles, measles, those kind of yeah. mumps, those kind of things. But but to, to to realize that only one has actually been eradicated, that's it's kind of amazing, isn't
1: it? It is, um, and there's. There are a few other infections. So so measles is another one that only circulates in humans. So if we were to manage to get rid of measles, it's very difficult because it's far more contagious than um, uh, than COVID is when people are susceptible. Um, But that, again, is a human infection that you could wipe out. The challenge with obviously coronaviruses, unfortunately, like other coronaviruses like flu, it circulates in animal populations as well. and We can't guarantee that there won't be another one. Well, it's interesting
0: not only how things spread, but also that things that seem to have nothing to do with each other seem to spread in the same way. Epidemiologist Adam Kucharski has been my guest. He is author of the book, The Rules of Contagion, Why Things Spread and Why They Stop. Thanks for joining me, Adam. Yeah, well, uh, thanks for
1: having me. Yeah, it's good to chat.
0: To get started, visit plushcare.com weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. People have always wondered, I think, whether or not technology affects our health. In the early days of television, there was concern that people just sitting around the house watching hours and hours of TV was bad for us in a lot of ways. And now people are probably even more concerned that all the technology at our fingertips is likely not so good for our health or our happiness. Ian Douglas has been looking into this. Ian is a journalist who has written widely on science, technology, health, child development, and the ways in which they all collide. He's former digital development editor for The Telegraph in the UK and author of the book, Is Technology Making Us Sick?, Hi, Ian. Welcome. Hello, Nice to be here. So when you ask the question, is technology making us sick, what kind of sick are we concerned about?
2: All right. So um, mostly we're, we're talking about stress here. We're talking about... Uh, stress has, apart from uh, sort of mental illness problems, there are things like heart disease and obesity and diabetes. When it affects our sleep, you can add Alzheimer's disease, strokes, some cancers, that sort of thing. Losing sleep is disastrous to health. So it's that's the extreme end of it. But it's mostly thriving and mental well-being that we're talking about for everyday people. Uh, but but there's a particular way that uh, modern personal technology. Uh, endangers our well-being. But there are, fortunately, uh, very simple and straightforward ways to alleviate that.
0: So explain how this works in detail, how this technology is causing all these problems.
2: Okay, so there's a cycle. So... so Personal technology is based around, and has been for some time, based around the idea of habit forming. All of the big technology companies want to induce habits in you. There's a cycle, it's called a hook cycle. It's used by all the big technology companies we we use every day. It's essentially trigger, action, variable reward, and investment. Say a friend of yours, Bob, uses the same social networks as you. So uh, you're in touch quite a lot through these social networks. And one day he posts a picture. Uh, his daughter's been in homeschool and she's done a wonderful project on something and he's very proud to post a picture. Now, when that happens, a little red dot appears on your phone screen. That's a trigger. With Bob and you, it's Facebook and it's a little red dot caused by uh, Bob's picture. So you tap on the icon. That's your action, trigger action. And then you cement the habit by the uh, networks encourage you to give something of yourself so you hit like on Bob's photo you add a comment saying this looks great the habit is becoming more and more ingrained and you're more likely to act on it when you see that little red dot again so this is great work also comes into this uh so the big work management tools also use this cycle so email or slack or basecamp or microsoft teams all, all of those things Uh, A message or an alert arrives from your project manager or your boss. That's the trigger. So you follow the link. Uh, Your action is acting on the message that you've received. You feel job satisfaction in various ways from being able to do the things you have to do. So there are your variable rewards. And then you send off an email of your own Uh, You propose an improvement, you work on your appraisal that's coming up, all that sort of thing. It builds the habit. It builds a positive habit. It's not as fun as you and Bob, but it is still a good habit to have. These are ways that technology helps us. But, and then we come to the but, uh, they encroach on each other. Each of these habits, uh, each of these applications just tries to get as much attention for itself as it can. And so they Get into each other's way, and you end up with uh, more than one uh, call on your time. What psychologists call the double bind. Now, this is a this is a direct route to stress, um, and and so you get work triggers at home, uh, friend triggers when you're with your family, and domestic things going on when you're in a meeting. So uh, the sociologists say, always on, never done. Uh, that's uh, that sums up how we feel. When we have tasks set for us by conflicting people and organizations uh, that we're always available to and with this personal technology we're always available
0: well i think everybody's experienced that but you know life is full of stress i mean if it isn't this it's something else what is so special what is so unique or so harmful about this technology stress
2: Habit forming technology uh, is designed by very clever people in order to form habits. Those habits are things that you do without thinking. And it's very easy to get to the point where you have these habits and you don't think of turning it off because you have an internal compulsion to follow the demands of the triggers that you're getting from your technology. It's it sounds easy to turn things off and in fact if you're conscious of the triggers and you're conscious of what's happening here then it is easy to turn it off and uh, we can go through ways of doing that uh, but it's it's really the thing that you need to know is that you realize that this is something the technology is designed to do it's not simply neutral delivery of messages it's trying to form a habit
0: Some might listen to your description of the stress and say if I turned it off, if I didn't have those things on, if I couldn't keep my eye on everything, that would be stressful because I'd be Mm -hmm. worried about what I'm missing.
2: Yes. Um, Another distinction psychologists make is between integrators and segmenters. Now an integrator tries to do everything all at the same time. So they bring their work home. They, uh, they're aware of everything that's happening at home while they're at work. Now, uh, while a, a segmenter uh, takes chunks of time, like being at work, for example, or being at home, and completely blocks everything out from all of their other little realms. Now, each person decides how much of a segmenter or an integrator to be the key to feeling Uh, feelings of competence is being able to juggle all of those and it's the it's the taking control of your technology that allows you to do that otherwise it can run away with you
0: and so what's so what's the solution here what's the Mm. answer
2: okay so the answer is uh that i mean that With any uh, project, anything you want to do, then there are are three levels to it, right? Objective, strategy, and tactics. Uh, The objective is thriving with technology. Uh, Strategy has to be to understand it and learn how to control it, because otherwise it can control us. And the tactics are what we're actually going to do to control that. The first thing, the first thing I'd like everybody to do is, you, you talk about being able to turn things off, it's simply doing that. But... Turning everything off, as you say, uh, cuts you off from all sorts of things and is very stressful in itself. So what you do, you go to your phone, uh, it's settings alerts on iOS and settings apps and notifications on Android, and you can set a level for every single app. So uh, if your boss needs to get in touch with you or your child's school needs to send you a message, then you get an alert. But if the uh, app you do, downloaded on a whim six months ago and have never used since, decides that it needs your attention, it can't get through to you. And that is transformative in people's lives, just being able to go in and turn everything off like that. But keeping the ones they want uh, is... is very, very uh, positive step to take on the road to having less stress and controlling your technology.
0: What about the um, idea of of turning everything off, at least for a while? Like, you could probably turn everything off for an hour, maybe two yeah. hours, and probably not get too stressed out.
2: Yes, and, and there are apps that can help you do that, things like antisocial and self-control, and, and they to block everything for a while and that's great but it's a crutch it's using it's using blocking rather than control Um, if you if you you then get to the end of your hour and you're in exactly the same position that you were at the beginning of it you just had a tiny break so they they, you can use those and I would recommend using those particularly at the beginning uh, when you're just feeling overloaded Uh, but really it's finding your own level and feeling in control of the alerts and the triggers that gets you in a better position.
0: It seems though that people who have this problem, that they have all this technology that's interrupting and competing for their time and all the all the things you've been talking about, that people who know it, that, that this is something that this has become part of their life it's kind of like you know telling somebody who smokes cigarettes you really should stop because it's bad for your health but you know they're really not going to stop because there is something about it. There is something about getting those notifications of being connected all the time that is I guess perversely in a way satisfying and, and people are hooked on
2: it. They are hooked, and um, and you know that's not in any way their fault. It's it's the way things are designed, and but it's not necessary, and it's not even necessary to be uh, in all of your technological loops all the time in order to stay connected. People feel it's true uh, b- because it is true. It, it's it is the case that. Uh, they have an onslaught of information and they can then pick and choose uh, which which bits of it they're going to act on, which is, a, which is a stressful and difficult way of managing things. It can be easier than that and it can be easier than that with the tools we already have. So the basic message here I think is that there's no reason to feel the level of stress that we do simply to stay in touch. The technology is more sophisticated than that. It can allow us to set priorities for ourselves and our families and our work without taking away any of the effectiveness of the communication that we enjoy and rely on.
0: Yeah, well, I think everybody's had the experience of of, for whatever reason, being unattached to everything, either on vacation mm-hmm. or just, you know, there's a blackout and there's no power that somehow it's kind of Pleasant. It's kind of it is. comforting to know that nobody can find me right now.
2: Yes, long flights are sort of a very good thing for that too. Um, yes, it is wonderful to cut off, cut off completely every now and then. Being in control of that is the key to it, I think. Uh, there, there in the a cabin in the mountains with uh, no reception whatsoever is a wonderful place to go to once in a while. But our society couldn't function um if we just cut ourselves off completely
0: but but we do know if we've had that experience that there is mm-hmm. some there is some benefit to doing that because it, <laughs>
2: it it feels good when you do it when you have to do it it, it does and there are levels of it there's unfettered all of my screaming for my attention all of the time which is the way an awful lot of people live and then there's completely cut off can't speak to anybody, but there's there's a look there's a very big spectrum in between uh, that we can inhabit, and and it's up to us which bit of that spectrum we uh, live on.
0: What's your sense of the best way to start if somebody's thinking, all right, well I, I can give this a try, but so
2: do what first? First of all, uh, set your app notifications. Uh, that's the really transformative thing that everybody should do, and then. After that, go through your emails. Email has been around for nearly 50 years now, but it's still uh, the primary method of electronic communication and digital marketing in particular. So there's an unsubscribe link on all of your uh, sort of regular emails. And there's a tiny little cognitive load for each one. Even if you ignore it and scroll past it or delete it, there's a little bit of your brain and a little bit of your attention that's given to it. Um, So... There are some that you'll be able to unsubscribe straight away uh, and you won't care about and it won't matter. And then there are some that you'll have to think about and some you'll definitely want to keep. And again, it's about keeping the useful ones. Uh, it's not a digital detox. You're, you're taking control of what you do. And then there's a thing called Inbox Zero, which is which is uh, also found very useful by a lot of people where you set aside a few minutes every hour and say, this is my email time. And then you do it and you get through everything and you don't leave anything undone and that's it's such an incredible feeling uh, when you when you know that you've dealt with all of your tasks you haven't given yourself too many tasks but you've dealt with all of your tasks in that time you've allotted and then find yourself free after that it's an incredible feeling
0: well you know i get that feeling when i when i am connected when i have got my email on my phone is on and i i know Mm. people can get to me and i clear everything out there's no notifications there are no messages there's no emails i like that feeling it's a good feeling doesn't last long (laughs) (laughs) it
2: doesn't last very long (laughs) well that's the thing it's much easier uh to achieve it and to uh and to keep it lasting a bit longer if you control the number of triggers you have coming in in the first place if you edit the number of hook cycles that you're in uh then then that good feeling is far easier to achieve and hold on to
0: i think too there's there is some sort of well there's a lot of individualness to this because i you know i've heard Mm -hmm. other time management people say don't check email first thing in the morning if I didn't check my email first thing in the morning, I would just sit here and worry about it. So, mm. for telling me not to check my email first thing in the morning, that, that's just never going to fly. That's never going to
2: fly. Absolutely. And and that's something that we all have to learn, is how we feel uh, in control of this. Because... You're absolutely right. The the feeling of not being in control can result from having far too much information and uh, alerts throwing at us. And also it can come from having blocked them all out, knowing that there's a whole world of uh, work and family and uh, relationships out of out there that we've somehow cut ourselves off from. And that that can that can be just as lonely as as being on the mountaintop. And yet we know we've done it to ourselves. No, I I would say it's very stressful to take any hard and fast rules about this. It's purely about finding your own level and uh, what you're comfortable dealing with. I think that what's
0: interesting and and also troubling about this is that People sort of know this. We've heard that there's a Mm -hmm. a problem with being connected all the time, but I think the problem's getting worse. People aren't stepping up and saying, all right, I mean, some people are probably, but generally speaking, people are ignoring the advice and staying as connected as they can be because that, I don't know, it it helps alleviate some of their anxiety or whatever that is, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't seem like... This problem's getting any better.
2: That's that's because the uh, the technology companies are so very good. At what they do? Remember, the five biggest companies in the world are entirely dependent on this hook cycle. All of the Google and Amazon and uh, Facebook. These companies, there are trillions of dollars at stake, and so they work incredibly hard at making sure that their habits are very well uh, embedded in your daily life. But they're also incredibly easy to break, as long as you're aware of the, the fact that they're simply a habit induced by certain very simple steps that we all go through every day. Well, it's
0: good to hear this, and it's good to know this, that when we're feeling stressed out because we're getting notifications on our phone and emails in our inbox. This is all deliberate. This is all habits that we've that we've grown accustomed to and when you realize that, then you can do things to undo them. Ian Douglas has been my guest. He is a journalist and the name of his book is Is Technology Making Us Sick? You'll find a link to his book in the show notes. <music> If you'd like to get along better with your spouse, partner, or or really anybody that lives in your house, don't let people get too hungry. It turns out that hunger can trigger and escalate arguments and discontent. That's because when you're hungry, your blood sugar is down and your anger levels go up. An Ohio State study put the theory to the test. They followed 107 married couples for 21 days. The couples were asked to record their satisfaction with their partner, along with their levels of anger and number of arguments. They also had to measure their blood sugar twice a day. At the end of the study, they found a direct correlation between low blood sugar and arguments. And that is something you should know. If everyone listened to this podcast, well, (laughs) that's just a dream I have, but you could help make it come true. By just sharing this podcast, well, you could share it with everyone you know, but really, if you would just share it with one person, and that's not asking much, that would make my day. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know